Uh, you may know uh, of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. One way to retranslate the word noble, which modern scholarship is encouraging, is that these are not just four noble truths, these are four ennobling truths. In other words, it ennobles one to engage these truths, which is a beautiful way, isn't it, to think about it. So, there is the ennobling fact that there is suffering from subtle to gross, from subtle forms of dissatisfaction, discontent, uneasiness, pressure, uh, longing, uh, something missing, all the way out to intense forms of physical and mental agony. That's the range of suffering. Life does contain suffering. It's not the entirety of life, but life does contain suffering. The cause of suffering is given in the second ennobling truth. When craving arises, so does suffering. That brings us to the third ennobling truth, that when craving passes away, so does suffering. And finally, the fourth ennobling truth, there is an eight-part path that both embodies and leads to the passing away of this craving. This is a telling of the Four Noble Truths. I think the heart of the Four Noble Truths is the third one. The possibility, the good news. I know Buddhism often gets this knock that it's the bummer religion. (laughs) First you suffer, then you die. (laughs) Rinse and repeat, you know. Uh, Great, thank you very much. But it's important to remember, the Buddha was known as the happy one. The point is the third noble truth, the possibility that we actually can undo this engine of craving, broadly defined, resisting what's unpleasant, grasping after what's pleasant, clinging to what's heartfelt, and getting deluded about what's neutral. That's kind of the essence of craving. The Buddha's teaching, hey, it's possible to reduce, if not radically liberate uh, oneself from that craving, and here's how to do it. Okay? So in... This framework, then, let's take a look at the second and third noble truths in the light of the evolution of the brain. The brain basically evolved to simplify a 600-million-year journey of the evolution of the nervous system. brain evolved in three stages, uh, reptilian-ish brainstem, early mammalian subcortical regions that include the amygdala and hippocampus, as well as the hypothalamus, the thalamus, some other, the basal ganglia, some other structures there. And then on top of that, we have the outer shell of the brain, the cortex, which really exploded. The brain has tripled in volume in the last three million years or so, and mainly in its cortex, cortical regions, that it's associated with the primate and especially human stages of evolution. Okay? This is kind of a useful fiction. In this context, brainstem, subcortex, cortex, reptilian, mammalian, primate, human, The brain's capacity to meet the three fundamental needs of any animal also evolved as well. The needs being broadly defined, safety, satisfaction, connection. Now the ways in which a couple worms connect to have sex with each other is quite different. The ways in which human adolescents connect preparing for a dance of some kind, you know, or a Facebook session, but um, it's still fundamentally about connection. So as the brain evolved, so did its capacities to meet these three needs as it developed these three overarching systems that help us be safe by avoiding harms, help us be satisfied 
by approaching rewards and help us be connected by attaching to others. The notion of avoiding and approaching, approach-avoid systems, is very familiar in psychology. I think that it's important to call out a third um, conceptually independent um, uh, motivational system that attaches to others, that recognizes the profundity of relationships in human life, and also recognizes how much neurogeography is zoned for love, broadly defined. So, in this model, we have three needs managed by three overarching systems. Okay? We can't do anything about these needs. We can't do anything about these systems. We're endowed with them. And these systems have two settings. So, let's take a look at the second noble truth here. Craving arises within a neurobiological, neuropsychological framework. Craving arises when there is some felt sense of deficit or disturbance. Craving is a drive state. Drives arise out of deficit or disturbance. So in terms of one or more of these three key needs, there's some sense or belief that there's a deficit or disturbance related to safety, satisfaction, or connection. When this happens, the brain tips into one of its two primary settings. It's reactive mode, in which it fires up sympathetic nervous system activation to fight or flee, or uh, depending on people's history or the situation, it uh, hyperactivates the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system to freeze and immobilize, play dead, you know, live to see the sunrise. Okay? In these uh, stress responses, the reactive mode, the body mobilizes for immediate urgent needs. In the wild, as Robert Sapolsky writes about in his great book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, says most episodes of the reactive mode craving stress bursts end quickly in the wild, one way or another. All right? And then we go back okay, to our resting state, which I'll get to in a moment. All right? Uh, So the body does these things in the mind in terms of these three broad systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching. In three umbrella terms, the mind is colored with fear in terms of the avoiding system, frustration, the approaching system, heartache in terms of the attaching system. If you're tracking Buddhist psychology, you can see that fear is another word for hatred. And that frustration is another word for greed. It is said that in Buddhism that there are three great poisons, or as the Buddha talked about it, fuels for the fire of suffering, the fuel of hatred, the fuel of greed, and the fuel of delusion. Hatred being a response to what's unpleasant, greed being a response to what's pleasant, delusion being a response to what's uh, neutral. That's That's classic Buddhist psychology. In my view, there's a fourth fuel for the fire of craving, There's a fourth poison, if you will. And frankly, I think there's emerging a fourth feeling tone. It is said that in psychology as well as in Buddhism, all experience has what's called a feeling tone or a hedonic tone as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I think based on the evolution of uh, the very sociable nature of the human species uh, and the large amount of real estate that's allocated to things like empathy, bonding, Um, altruism, romantic love, 
uh, cooperative planning and so forth, that a fourth feeling tone is evolving, a fourth hedonic tone of experience, for lack of a better word, I call it heartfelt. In response to the uh, sense of things being unpleasant, the avoiding system activates and can tip into hatred or, if you will, fear. In response to things that are pleasant, the approaching system activates and can tip into um, uh, frustration or greed in traditional language. And in my view, when the attaching system, when, when when there's a heartfelt feeling tone that can't just be deconstructed into what's pleasant and unpleasant or neutral, when there's something heartfelt, there's a tendency to move into the attaching system, which tips into heartache when there's a sense of deficit or disturbance. What I'm trying to do here is operationalize in evolutionary neuropsychological terms the second and third noble truth. We'll get to the third one in a moment. Okay? I think it's a cool framework. All right. That's the bad news. On the other hand, in the third noble truth, when craving passes away, so does suffering. When the mind is not invaded, the Buddha had this great line. He said, this, all this stuff arose for me. I'm paraphrasing. All this stuff arose for me, pleasant and unpleasant. Yet it did not invade my mind and remain. Stuff arises. That goes to the question also, how do we be with our experience? Or how do we enjoy pleasant experiences without tipping into that second noble truth of craving and suffering? Right? How do we do that? Well, we don't let it invade the mind and remain. Okay? So, when there is a basic sense of enough safety, enough satisfaction, and enough connection, core needs are met, the brain defaults to its resting state when it's not disturbed by a sense of deficit or or turbulence. All right? In this resting state, the body repairs and refuels itself. It focuses on long-term building projects. And the mind rests, in terms of these three broad systems, avoiding, approaching, attaching, in a sense of peace, contentment, and love. This is the responsive mode of the brain. I call it the green zone, distinct from the reactive red zone. This is our resting state. It's our equilibrium condition. It's sustainable. Mother Nature's plan is for her little critters to spend most of their time in the green zone, punctuated by brief bursts of red zone stress that end quickly one way or another. These days, while most of us are not running and screaming terror from a charging lion, right, or the equivalent, on the other hand, we tend to be exposed to mild to moderate chronic stressors. Call it the pink zone. So that with very little opportunity for recovery, right? That's a total violation of Mother Nature's plan. And it's a major source of uh, what's called allostatic load, uh, which is the burden of the gradually accumulating... Yeah, it's in the previous slide. Allostatic down there is a term that's developed for the, for the stress burden, for the burden of reactive mode activations. Or, frankly, allostatic load is another way of talking about this is your brain on craving. You know, this, this is your brain on drugs, eggs in a frying pan, MTV ads. This is your brain on craving, right? The brain on craving gradually accumulates allostatic load, which is a burden that wears down long-term physical and mental health. 
So here we have a way to operationalize the third noble truth in a foundational sense. As I'll get into later, I don't think this is awakening itself to truly rest in in a deeply internalized felt sense of profound safety, satisfaction, and connection, profound uh, peace, contentment, and love. But this is a very good foundation for, for practice. Okay? We don't have a choice about the brainstem uh, subcortex and cortex. We don't have a choice about the uh, reptilian, mammalian, primate, human stages of evolution. We don't have a choice about our three needs or these three systems. We don't have a choice about the fact that the brain essentially has two settings to simplify a lot of complexity to a manageable extent. Our choice is which mode we're in. Are we enacting and thus reinforcing, since neurons have fired together, wire together, the second noble truth of craving, the pink zone? Are we enacting that? Or are we going green? Are we resting increasingly in the responsive mode of the brain, engaged with life, but on the basis of that evenness, of walking over uneven ground, that is the heart of equanimity. How do we do it? Like I said earlier, we've got Stone Age brains in the 21st century. They're designed to go red. The drop of a half, right? What are we going to do about it? Well, we can repeatedly register through taking in the good, we can repeatedly install the felt sense of no basis for craving. We're engaged with life, We're engaged with wholesome desires. The root of the word in the language of early Buddhism, Pali, for craving, is the word is tanha. The root of that is thirst. It's a drive state, regulated, interestingly, by the hypothalamus, this dry little drive regulator in the brain. The Buddha reserved another word for wholesome desire, chanda, like the desire that others be happy, or the desire that one flourish, or that one's business succeed, right? or that people come to one's workshop, or that you know, sooner or later you actually get lunch. You know, those are wholesome <laughs> desires. Or that the 49ers prevail, those Seahawks. But anyway, these are okay. The trouble comes, of course, when we get all caught up in them, when we go red around them. All right? So through repeatedly internalizing responsive experiences, which often come from releasing the momentary gratifications of the red zone, Through resting green, going green, we increasingly stay green. Kind of like deepening the keel of a sailboat. So that as the worldly winds blow, we get less knocked over. Or if we get knocked over, we recover more quickly. Which is good for our well-being. And ultimately also lets us go out and uh, sail the deep dark blue. Because we're more prepared to deal with the challenges of life. Because we've built in that deep keel that comes from repeatedly internalizing the deeply felt sense of core needs met. In a nutshell, in terms of our evolution, we need to pet the lizard. <laughs> in other words, in terms of our deep needs for safety, and which are rooted in the most ancient parts of the brain, because fear was probably the first emotion. Rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Right? So, and those ancient parts of the brain are the slowest to learn. Because neuroplasticity decreases, the ways in which the brain can change from useful learning experiences decreases as we go back down the brain and therefore back in time. So that little inner lizard needs a lot of padding, 
a lot of experiences of being all right right now, a lot of experiences of feeling safe, protected, strong and able to deal with life, relaxing, releasing. We also need to feed the mouse in terms of our approaching reward system, early mammalian system. There is a lot of wholesome cheese, including the wholesome cheese of self-compassion through repeatedly taking it in. Less and less, we already feel unconditionally full and less and less easily manipulated by the forces of consumerism that always want us to want the next thing. And, of course, we need to hug the monkey. Respecting our deeply social nature. There are four monkeys in that picture. See if you can find the fourth one. In other words, through repeatedly internalizing, feeling cared about, feeling included, seen, appreciated, liked, even loved, we, you know, come to rest. And we more and more, even when life is challenging, we're rested in the responsive mode, the green zone. We're relatively rested in an enactment, in a real sense, of the third noble truth. Or to summarize it, we look for those opportunities to rest in peace, contentment, and love as a major way to establish equanimity. This, for me, has been a very useful framework and a very powerful way to think about what I think of as the heart of the Buddha's teachings, which is this transition from the second to the third noble truth. That's what it's really about in a deep way, and that which serves that process. So let's marinate for a moment here in the third noble truth, or at least get a taste of it, and then we'll shift into announcements and lunch. Okay? So, if you like, if you can... See if you can start to have and then enrich and absorb. In other words, activate and install. Whatever sense of peace is within reach for you right now. You might start with a long exhalation, which tends to relax the body. You might notice, as we did previously, that you're actually all right right now, and you can let go of needless guarding or bracing or anxiety. In the language of the Buddha, tranquilizing, not numbing, tranquilizing, bringing to tranquility the body and the mind, and opening to peace. There's no need to resist anything or be at war with anything. Resting in peace.
There could be a sense that parts of you are peaceful right now while others are not. For example, there might be a sense of awareness itself has a peacefulness to it, even if there's something that's worrying you. And you can um, increasingly come home to and take refuge in those aspects of the mind that are peaceful, even if there are other aspects that are not. And letting whatever sense of peace could be there to move more into the background. And focusing now on contentment. Beginning, if you like, with bringing to mind one or more things that you feel grateful for. Or glad about. might have a sense of the fullness that's already present in your life or even in any moment of awareness. The fullness of sounds, thoughts, sensations present in the mind stream. Who could want anything more? All right as well and skillful even to think of things that make you feel happy. Smile, if that's real. Children, places, touching on different things. Whatever might fuel for you a growing sense of contentment. A sense of well-being in the moment with no wish for it to be other than what it is. There might be sorrow, there might be depressed mood. It can be there. While there can also be a sense of it being held in or occurring in a larger space that has a sense of undisturbed well-being 
to it, contentment. In this contentment, you can be aware that there's little or no basis for grasping, for chasing after anything pleasant. You're already contented. No need to be disturbed in that way. What's that like to have a sense of that kind of grasping falling away? Resting in contentment. And then Contentment, moving to the background and opening more and more to love. If you like starting with feeling loved, feeling cared about, surfacing that experience so you have it, It's okay if the relationships are imperfect. The love itself is perfect. In all its forms, being included, being seen, or being appreciated, or liked, or loved. Out of wisdom and kindness for yourself, opening to feeling cared about, feeling loved. Also feeling loving, being aware of those that you care about, that you like, or have compassion for, appreciate, even cherish. Touching lightly on these relationships and mostly resting in, marinating in the feeling of love itself.
love flowing into you, love flowing out of you, love either way, loved and loving. And as you open more and more to love, be aware of a falling away of any clinging, any chasing after things in relationships. No need for that. It's okay to wish that more people liked you or loved you. There's a place for that. It's all right. While also feeling rested in some sense of already being liked and loved enough at least in this moment. Resting in love, undisturbed. And then bringing it all together with a kind of integrated sense of peace, contentment, and love. Perhaps as one kind of global experience or maybe attention moving among these three. Seeing what it's like for the last minute or so here. To just kind of rest in a place where there's no... <coughs> basis of deficit or disturbance. There's no basis for craving, no basis for resisting what's unpleasant or chasing what's pleasant or clinging to what's heartfelt. Resting in a real taste of the third noble truth in the responsive mode of the brain, resting in your home, your natural state, undisturbed as peace, contentment, and love.
just a few minutes, we'll move into lunch. And I really encourage you to explore what is it like, you know, notice the second noble truth arising and notice the third noble truth arising, you know, and watch what it's like and see if you can, as Upandita puts it, expand the range of experiences in which you're essentially rested in the third noble truth. There's no particular juice for uh, resisting something unpleasant, chasing after something pleasant, or clinging to some interpersonal experience. There's no need, no basis for it. See what that's like. See if you can expand the range of hanging out in the green zone. All right? So if you bear with us, we have a few announcements to make, and we'll get through them as quickly as possible. All right, Sarah, do you want to make some announcements? Sure. You okay? Take out the sound system if I can. And now I'm going to sit down. Uh, yeah, just a few things with good news at the end. Um, one, there's a woman named Tessa here who got a ride in from the city today, and her ride went home. Is there anyone here? Tessa, are you here? There you are. Is there anyone here who's going back to the city, could take her to the Mission or BART or Muni? Yeah? Okay. Tessa, arm. Wait, can you put your arm back up? And Tessa? Bob, Tessa, turn around. She's waving behind you, several rows back. If you guys can connect at lunch. Thank you so much, Bob. Um, okay, so reminder, Rick's email list is out there. And if you want to get the slides today, and the slides and nothing but the slides. Oh, what I'll normally do, unless you say just slides, is I'll subscribe you to this weekly newsletter I do called Just One Thing. About 100,000 people get it. Kind of neat. It's a practice newsletter. Uh, you can always unsubscribe. If you already get the newsletter, you will not get two copies, um, so it's okay. So that's just what that is. And if you forget and you just get my slides and you don't want my propaganda, just unsubscribe, just like that. I don't want to receive stuff I don't want. I don't want to send things people don't want. What about the online people? Same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll subscribe you too unless you say, but, and you can unsubscribe. Okay, for online okay? folks, we will subscribe. And it's a practice newsletter. It's really short and sweet. I mean, things like Love Freely, that's one of the ones we're doing currently. Um, don't beat yourself up. I think that's this week's practice. They're good. It's worth taking a look at. Um, okay, and then, okay, so if you did not bring lunch today, the closest place to get lunch is the Woodacre Deli. It's probably a drive. On the uh, doors leading out of the uh, community hall here, not these, but the outer doors, there's a map to Woodacre to the deli uh, if you want to pick up lunch over there. And... Um, Oh, there's no retreat on, so that's fairly unusual. This is a wonderful chance for you all, if you have not been up to the retreat center, to go see the upper retreat hall, which is a lovely, uh, beautiful space. And it's also kind of fun for me to think about it now because all the orange in the construction out there is uh, in part to build a new community hall, which will look quite a bit like the upper retreat hall does right now. So very much looking forward to that, as beautiful as this space is. Um, so yeah, it's and it's just there's quite often there's almost always a retreat going on up there. So if you get a chance, wander on up, and um, and then finally, um, Rick is going to talk to you about the practice of Donna. But for those of you who are new or maybe don't remember, I just want to let you know that the fee you paid today, thank you very much, um, goes to Spear Rock, and none of it goes to uh, Rick as a teacher for today. He uh, teaches. Um, he offerings his teaches teachings freely, and then whatever you offer to him is how he gets paid today, and he's going to more articulately talk about that some more. So, and last thing, sorry, 
There were a few people who had registration stuff this morning that I need to see. So if uh, the following folks could come grab me in the office during lunch. Kim Haverson, Janine Davis, something that starts with a G, Michael Alexander, Michael Sagredo, and Jennifer Thiel. So any questions? Closest place is the wood. There's nothing on site here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you can eat in the hall here today. That's fine. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, just careful of the ticks. Okay. What time are we going to come back? I'll say. Okay. Thank you. Any more questions about lunch in the back? Is there a microwave? Yeah, there's one, one microwave. <laughs> so go, it's, go to look where the tea is. It's back in the corner back there. I'll tell you, so do me a favor, stick, tell you what, stick around for another three minutes, okay? And if there are any more detailed questions, come on up kind of quickly. First point, if you do have a chance to go to the upper hall, uh, take your shoes off, please, when you go into that hall. And it's, it's really fun, and if you want to do something I do, I go into the exact center of this octagonal hall, eight-fold path, eight-sided hall, and kind of look up or just get the vibe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.